This is Think It Through with me, April A. Bear. Get ready to start thinking. I know, it's hard, and you'd probably rather not. But here we go anyway. Hey everyone, before I get started, I feel the need to explain myself a little bit because I'm sure many of you are thinking, who is this April A. Bear and why does she get a podcast? Well, everybody has a podcast now, so if you don't have one, better get cracking. No, actually, I'm a professor of communication at the College of Southern Nevada, and in my over 20 years of teaching, I've come to realize that the critical thinking component of my classes was really hard for a lot of my students to grasp. And no offense to philosophy textbook writers out there, but they can be pretty boring. Plus, not a lot of the examples in them apply to real-life situations. And we've got some pretty serious real-life situations going on out there. And learning to think more clearly and rationally about important issues is something we could all use in our lives. So while this podcast is mostly focused on making clearer thinking easier for my students, I'm also making it available to anyone out there generally interested in critical thinking. At this point, I only have five episodes scheduled, so this is what's called a limited series podcast. But hey, who knows? I might get good at this. Stick with me and we'll find out. Oh, and you won't have to listen to just me throughout the entire series, because I'll be interviewing some really interesting and knowledgeable people. Just not in this first episode. You're stuck with me. Sorry about that. I'll try to keep things interesting. Okay, all that exposition is out of the way. It's time to start the episode. So, let's start by not talking about critical thinking at all. That's right, this episode has very little to do with good reasoning skills. It's about some of the things that get in the way of our ability to think clearly. In fact, this podcast is largely about things that interfere with clear thinking, how we can recognize them and attempt to move beyond them, and make some sense out of all the information that's out there in the real world. But today, we're going to start with feelings because feelings come first. Here's a question. When you're asked for your opinion on some topic, how often is the question phrased as, how do you feel about this topic instead of what do you think about it? And when you respond, how often do you say something like, well, I feel like, and then you try to explain your viewpoint. So, even though we basically understand that thinking is cognition and feeling is emotion, and those are not the same thing, we still use the word feel when we probably should use the word think. Or maybe not. Maybe we are using the right word. I mean, we instinctively have an immediate gut reaction to even the mention of something that we feel strongly positive or negative about, even before we try to explain what it is about that thing that causes us to feel that way. Dr. Mark Solms, a neuropsychologist who teaches a free online course called What is a Mind, which I'll link to in the show notes, says that yes, feelings do come first. He explains that feelings represent demands on our minds to think, which I find fascinating. So thoughts are actually ways of dealing with feelings. While he approaches this topic from a neuropsychoanalytic viewpoint, and frankly that's way beyond my pay grade, the basic idea remains that we are indeed first feeling, then thinking creatures. 
Take, for instance, a newborn baby. Not a lot of actual thought is going on inside that little brain, not yet, anyway. That baby is working entirely on instinct and emotion. And if all goes well in that baby's early life, she's going to realize fairly quickly the link between feeling uncomfortable or upset about something that needs to be taken care of and having that need met by a caregiver. And that's the beginning of the thought process. If I feel this way, I can do this thing, and the problem will get fixed. Obviously, as she gets older, more thoughts will develop in relation to particular feelings, and she's eventually going to mature into a fully thinking, feeling person. I'm explaining this in the most simplistic terms, only because I'm using it to move on to what I really want to focus on in this episode. And that leads me to something called heuristics, which are mental shortcuts that we use on a very regular basis. In fact, many of the thoughts we have throughout the day utilize these shortcuts. I mean, once we've figured out that certain things are related to other things, we don't have to go through the same mental steps each time to come to the same conclusion. Heuristics are great. They save a lot of time and mental effort, and they can help us come to conclusions and make decisions quickly. Honestly, if you had to think through every single situation, every single time it occurred, that's all you'd be doing, and you simply wouldn't be able to get anything done. So obviously, heuristics are useful and necessary, but sometimes they don't actually work in our favor. Here are the few of the ones we use regularly and what can go wrong with them. The first one is the availability heuristic. Now, we use this one when we decide something based on how easily the topic springs to mind, how available it is to our memory. If something springs into our mind easily, we tend to assume that it's probably common or true, and it certainly might be. So in that case, this heuristic works well. However, it can cause us to overestimate the probability of something being the case. Let's say, for instance, if your boss decides to send you to a conference that you'll have to fly to, and boom, your brain quickly thinks about multiple examples of plane crashes. And then you start to think about your plane crashing because if plane crashes spring so easily to your mind, it's easy for you to believe that airplane crashes are far more common than they actually are. And yeah, I get that exploding at 32,000 feet does sound bad, but you realize you have an approximately 1 in 3 billion chance of dying in a plane crash. Compare that to your odds of dying in a car crash, which are something like 1 in 106. Now those odds suck. So why aren't you afraid to get in your car and drive to Target? Well, it's because our brains are far more likely to quickly think about all the times we drove to Target without incident. The second type is the representative heuristic. In this one, we make a decision about something because it reminds us of something else that we're already familiar with. Our brain quickly says, oh, this is like that other thing. And because things, situations, and people often do have commonalities to the point that you can assume that what's true about one is also true about the other, this heuristic can save you a lot of time and mental energy. However, it can also backfire. Let's say you meet someone who reminds you of your ex. 
And let's say you have bad feelings about your ex. It's very likely that you will be hard pressed to see this new person in a good light, at least until you learn more about them, which might never happen because you hate your ex. Or maybe you meet a kind looking older person who reminds you of your sweet and honest Aunt Sue. So you immediately have a good feeling about this new person. Imagine your surprise when you find out she's been arrested for extortion. That doesn't fit the stereotype of sweet little old lady. And that's what can happen with the representative heuristic. It can lead us to make incorrect assumptions about people and things. And the last one I'm going to talk about is called the affect heuristic. Affect is another word for emotions. Now, what emotions you're feeling at any given moment when you need to decide something can have a great deal of impact on the choice you make. If you're feeling happy and positive, the choice you make might be radically different than the one you make when you're depressed or angry. I know I've made some dumb choices in a moment of anger or excitement, and I'll bet you have too. Yeah, we won't talk about those. I'll just let you imagine them. Anyway, these heuristics are automatic. We don't even realize we're using them. We just use them. Let me repeat, heuristics can be helpful and time-saving. But as in the examples, if you're panicky about flying because you keep thinking about plane crashes, or if you never end up being friends with someone solely because something about them reminds you of your ex, or if you make a really bad choice simply because you were feeling cranky on a particular day, then you can see how heuristics can sometimes be problematic. In fact, our brain uses these kinds of mental shortcuts to put things and people into categories all the time. And that can lead to stereotyping and prejudice and cause us to ignore individuality and nuance in favor of saving ourselves a couple of seconds of brain time. Okay, now I'm going to move from heuristics to cognitive biases, which are also largely unconscious and automatic. Cognitive biases are a collection of faulty ways of thinking that are hardwired into our brain. They're different from heuristics because heuristics can be helpful. Cognitive biases, on the other hand, are departures from rational thinking that lead us to incorrect conclusions about the world. There are too many of them for me to discuss here, but I would like to bring five common ones to your attention because I think you're going to see yourself in at least some of them. Are you ready? Here we go. Cognitive bias number one, confirmation bias, or as I like to call it, the see, I knew it bias. This is our tendency to pay more attention to information that supports something we already believe to be true and ignore information that doesn't support it. This bias can limit our perception by filtering out information that might cause us, if we really look at it, to recognize that our belief might be incorrect. And of course, we can't have that, can we? Because being wrong feels bad, and we don't like feeling bad. So we are motivated to accept information that supports our belief and immediately reject or ignore any information that doesn't. This is why people who label themselves as liberal or conservative tend to follow whatever media outlets that they feel express those viewpoints because they're going to get support for their beliefs from those sources. And they also each reject the worldview espoused by the other news source. 
This is a very common way that this bias plays out. And unless we take the time to carefully look at all information surrounding an issue, it is going to keep us in our comfortable little bubble of limited, possibly incorrect, and maybe even dangerous beliefs. Cognitive bias number two, the self-serving bias or the it's not my fault bias. This is our tendency to attribute positive things that happen to us to some internal aspect of our character, but if negative things happen to us, it's because of some outside force over which we have no control. So if you get a promotion at work, you think it's because you're a talented, hard worker and you earned that promotion. But if someone else gets promoted over you, it's because of favoritism and the boss just doesn't appreciate you. It's fine to take responsibility for the things that happen to us that are good, but other things or people might also have factored into those successes. So failing to recognize that is failing to see things clearly. Also, this cognitive bias gets in the way of clear thinking when we fail to see the part we play when negative things happen to us. Sure, outside forces can and do play a part when bad things happen, but failing to acknowledge the part we may have played in those events might make us feel better, but it doesn't help the situation. Cognitive bias number three, the fundamental attribution error. This is related to the self-serving bias, and it's our tendency to fail to recognize that other people's negative or positive behavior is as much constrained by circumstances as our own would be if we were in that position. What do I mean by that? Okay, if you see a car wildly careening down the street, your first thought might be something like, what a reckless jerk. And while it's true, that person might actually be a reckless jerk who has complete control of the situation and has chosen to act poorly. It's just as likely that there is a reason that is outside of that person's control. Maybe they're having a medical issue or a wasp flew in their window and they're desperately trying not to get stung while looking for a place to pull over. Or honestly, a million other possibilities that we tend not to consider. We just automatically assume there's something wrong with that person's character. And it also causes us to feel a bit superior to that person because, of course, we would never act like that. Cognitive bias number four, the negativity bias. Think about it. We are naturally drawn to bad news, and we also tend to give more weight to negative information about something or someone than positive news about them. That's why gossip is so popular. Even our brains show more neural activity in response to negative information than positive information. Now, why is that? Well, it's a survival mechanism. Bad news has the potential to harm us in some way, so our brain is primed to pay attention to it in case we need to act on it. Good news, on the other hand, is nice to know, but it's less likely to affect our survival. So we pay more attention to bad things than good things. And now you know why the nightly news always reports the bad news first, and why we are sure that the end of the world is like any day now. And while it's true we have some major issues to overcome, you'd be surprised to find that things are often better than we think they are. There's a great TED Talk with the late public health researcher Hans Rosling and his son Ola that might help you to realize that the negative ideas we have about the world aren't necessarily the case. I'll link to it in the show notes. And finally, well, I don't actually mean finally, there's still lots of cognitive biases we carry around inside our heads, but this is the last one I'm going to talk about today. Cognitive bias number five, 
the Dunning-Kruger effect. This causes people to overestimate their knowledge about a topic or their ability to do something. They think they're smarter or better or more talented than they actually are. In their seminal 1999 study, Cornell University psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger measured subjects on things like logic, grammar skills, and even sense of humor. The people who scored the lowest on these tests when they were asked how they thought they'd done ranked themselves much higher than they actually scored and were pretty sure that the scores they thought they got were the scores they actually got and that they deserved. Now, not everybody falls victim to this particular bias. Those that do lack something called metacognition. They simply lack the ability to examine themselves objectively. And since they can't see themselves accurately, it's unlikely that they'll ever take the necessary steps to actually learn about the things they already think they can do well, but can't. And that's kind of tragic, or maybe even dangerous, depending on who we're talking about here. And those are just a few of the many cognitive biases that keep us from thinking clearly. If you, like me, find cognitive biases fascinating, you might want to check out one of my favorite podcasts called You Are Not So Smart with host David McRaney. I love that title because it immediately puts you in your place and lets you know that, hey, we're all guilty of self-delusion on some level. I'll put the link to his website in the show notes. It's definitely binge-worthy. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, so my brain is messed up, but what can I do about this? If these responses are natural and automatic, then how can I do anything differently? Well, you already can think differently. It's important for you to recognize that not all of your thinking is this quick, intuitive, and unconscious thinking, which is often referred to as fast thinking, type one thinking, affective thinking, or experiential thinking. But, we also have the ability to think far more deliberatively. This other type of thinking is called slow thinking, obviously, but it's also known as type 2 thinking or deliberative thinking. Psychologists agree that one of the functions of the slow, deliberative thinking mode is to monitor the other kind of thinking. Remember, I just talked about metacognition, the ability to examine yourself objectively. That's what I'm talking about here, thinking, about our thinking. And you're doing that right now in response to everything I'm telling you. You're becoming more aware of your thinking. Now, in the past, scientists really didn't think there was much that could be done to mitigate our biases. However, new research seems to suggest that training to reduce cognitive biases can actually make a difference and lead to better decision-making. These experts say the first step to reducing our cognitive biases is to learn about them which you just did, and to become more aware of the situations in which they can occur. Janine Schindler, a master certified coach who works with executives and organizations on overcoming these biases, has some helpful tips. For instance, confirmation bias can cause us to end up with a worldview that's severely lacking in objectivity. So, she recommends surrounding yourself with a diverse group of people rather than just people who already think like you. Be more willing to listen to those people, to accept criticism and consider new ideas, even if you don't end up accepting those ideas, which, hey, maybe you shouldn't. They can give you insight into other ways of thinking and being. 
Saying this is easy, but actually doing it can be difficult because it's very hard to sit and listen to someone whose worldview is the exact opposite of yours. And sometimes it's true that you might need to take a step away from a conversation for a bit if your mental health is at stake. However, it's also important not to shut people out entirely if you care about them. I'll link to some interesting articles from Forbes magazine that go into detail on how to overcome cognitive biases in the show notes. Okay, so let's wrap this discussion up. I hope that I've opened your eyes just a little bit to the fact that one of the reasons why clear thinking is so hard is because we feel first and think later, or sometimes not at all. So much of our thinking is this automatic, intuitive, quick thinking, which can be good in some instances and not so good or even really bad in others. When our cognitive biases cause errors in our thinking process, it leads to false conclusions and bad decisions on our part. But we have the capability to use our deliberative thinking mode to take a step back and look closely at these heuristics and biases and work to overcome them. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to all kinds of great information and resources to help you think it through. And that's it for this episode. I'll see you in episode two.